Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Thank you, Stuart and Courtney and the band for leading us this morning. And if you have a copy of God's Word, I encourage you, encourage you to join me in John chapter 5. So we'll be in the Gospel of John, the fourth of the Gospels. And uh, chronological order, or not chronological, but sequential orders, they are found in your New Testament. Uh, John chapter 5, we're going to begin in verse 17, and we'll go to the end of the chapter. And so with that being said, there's a lot of ground to cover, and we'll do our best to stay uh, on track and uh, be able to navigate through this. Uh, Deliberated about whether or not we should break these up, but a lot of this needs to be shared in context of each other so we could be able to see how the passage f- uh, flows and unfolds, and so we wanted to try to keep that together. But we know this morning it's going to be a little bit like drinking water out of a fire hose, and so I uh, encourage you just to stay with me. If you have a weekly bulletin, uh, we encourage you to take those out. The notes there, will, you can follow along and, and uh, fill in the blanks as we go. Once again, just as a way of reminder for those. Uh, it's not simply just for those who listen better while they doodle. Uh, that's fine as well. The intent is to be able to put it in a, in a manner or a a outline that you can reproduce. What we receive, and James 1 would tell us, we don't want to be forgetful hearers, but we want to be doers of the word. And so what we receive, we want to reproduce in the lives of others. And no better truth that we want to be uh, wanting to reach the ears of those around us, those that we love, those that are in the context of our families, our friends, our coworkers, our neighbors, uh, and a myriad of other avenues and venues that God has us in. Uh, nothing has greater importance than what we're going to share today as it relates to Jesus Christ is your title. Jesus Christ is God. And so I want us to read through the passage. We'll read through it in its entirety, uh, and then we're going to go through it and begin to unpack what has transpired. I'll give you a little bit of context in case you haven't been with us uh, the last couple weeks, and I'll give you a little bit of context, and then we'll we'll unpack our outline together. So John chapter 5, hopefully you found your place in the Word, and if you're once again, don't have a Bible. We encourage you to use the, the, the uh, Bibles and the, the chairs in front of you. That's in the English Standard Version. Uh, and if not, you have a cell phone. We encourage you to, to uh, look up the scriptures and follow along with us as well. So, John chapter five, beginning in verse seventeen, and we will go to verse seven, which uh, forty-seven, which is the end of the chapter. Verse seventeen in John five it says, "But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working.'" This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own own father, making himself equal with God. And so Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son of Man can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. For the Father judges no one, but He has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. He who does not come 
He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Son has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. And those that, and, uh, and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing of, on my own as I hear I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There's another who bears witness about me and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has has borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Let's pray. Father, there's much truth in the scriptures that we've read, the passages, the verses in this passage that speak words that we need to know and we need to understand, that we need to confess and yield and obey, and Lord, that we need to share with others. And so I pray that you would give great clarity to us this morning. I pray, Lord, it wouldn't just be intellectual understanding, for many can arrive at, at that place, but we pray for a spiritual illumination that leads to obedience. It leads to worship and it leads to praise and glory for your son. It leads for some to reconciliation with you and continued sanctification for those who have already been born again. And so, Lord, that's what we're aiming for this morning. That, Lord, your word would would speak. That, Lord, your word that has already been spoken would bring about great change in us as we begin to understand more and more about your son and whom you have sent. And it's in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, the context of this long discourse from verses 17 through 47 uh, follows the healing of the invalid. Remember last week, there was a man who, had, who was an invalid uh, for 38 years. He was at the pool named Bethesda. And you remember that title of that pool. Bethesda means the house of outpouring or a house of mercy. He had been lying there for some time, believing some myth that when the water was somehow stirred, that ultimately the first one in the water would be able to receive some uh, supernatural healing, and yet that we know that was a superstition. It probably was just a, a, um, a stream that, I mean, a, a pool that had a source 
that was they came from a stream, and so as a result of that, there would be a bubbling of the water at times. But they had uh, had conjured up some uh, superstition that the first one in would be healed, and so as a result of that, this this pool near the sheep gate in Jerusalem was where many invalids, many who were lame and blind and paralyzed, were laying there. When and Jesus was. Uh, had come into the town. He was in Jerusalem because of a feast of the Jews, as we saw in verse 1 last week of chapter 5. And Jesus then sees him, demonstrates compassion upon him, and Jesus intentionally heals this man on the Sabbath. Now, this is where uh, his sovereign work, Christ's sovereign work of healing, he could have healed on any day. Probably this gentleman would have been there the day before on Friday, which the Sabbath is Saturday, so he potentially was there probably the day before. He was going to be there probably the day after, the Lord's Day as we know it today on Sunday. But Jesus chooses in his compassion to heal on the Sabbath. And only that, he gives the man, the man instructions to obey. Remember back in verse 8, he tells the guy, three commands, get up, take up your, your bed or take up your mat and walk. Three commands for this individual to obey. And the man is healed instantaneously and completely. He's healed fully, right? This wasn't just partial healing as many of the supposed... Um, charlatans of our day, uh, faith healers, if you will, that, uh, compl- uh, that, that testify of themselves that they're able to heal. Jesus healed instantaneously and completely, and this guy took up his bed and walked. And it was there shortly thereafter that this man is going to be confronted by the Jewish religious leaders, as it's labeled the Jews in this passage and throughout the Gospel of John. And that was, you see that in verse 10. And they say to him, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful, lawful for you to take up your bed. Now, is that true? No, it's not true. It was lawful for him to take up his bed. He wasn't working, right? So as, you, as we said last week, as the Bible commands of us honoring the Sabbath, it was that you would to prohib- you're prohibited from doing your ongoing daily occupational work. And so not uh, a variety of other work that, would be, that potentially could be done or, or simple things as us carrying things throughout your home or carrying things from house to house. But as a result of the rabbinical laws, these additional laws that were added by the rabbis or the religious leaders, they said it was, him, it was not lawful for him to do these things. And so the man who had recently been healed, who had, remember, had been an invalid for 38 years, who was radically healed by Jesus, instantaneously, completely healed, then shifts the blame on his healer. And I thought, I remember I told you last week, it was interesting that he, even, he didn't even take the time to get the name of the man who healed him, Right. He did not know the man in front of him was the very son of God, was the Messiah, was God in flesh. And as a result, I did not even take the time to get his name and then shifts the blame, trying to please man on the man who healed him. And so he tries to shift the blame. What was the man who healed me? The one who told me to take up my mat and walk and inquired of him who this man was. And he did not know. Later on in the passage, you find that Jesus finds the man, identifies himself to him, and warns him to repent of sin, right? To sin no more, uh, that no great worse fate would happen to him, and to walk by faith. But is that how the man responds? No, he immediately goes back to the Jewish leaders, these called the Jews, uh, the Jewish religious leaders, and told him who was responsible for him breaking the Sabbath laws. He basically ratted out Jesus at that particular time. And so this is the context of where we find ourselves, and Jesus is going to interact with this particular discourse today. It's in two primary passages out of uh, the, past, uh, the section that we taught last week. If you want to kind of know the context and what's happening, the setup of John 5. Uh, John 5, 5 would be an interesting verse to look at, uh, where John draws attention. John, the apostle who's writing uh, this gospel, says, Now that day was the Sabbath. 
Like he's drawing attention to the fact that this, this healing had transpired on the Sabbath. And this is not anything that's uncommon for Jesus. Jesus was constantly poking at these areas of man-made tradition uh, to challenge the religious leaders. Why? Because they were trusting in these man-made traditions for their salvation. They weren't trusting in the Messiah who was to come. Even though they said they were looking for him, they said they were longing for him. They had a variety of misperceptions and misconceptions of what that was going to look like and who that person was going to be. And yet he stands in front of them, Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, stands in front of them and they do not recognize him and they do not receive him. And it's in verse 16, another verse that would be a key to this passage to unlock this for us, where we're going to be today. Is, and this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Now, what are these things? What are the things that he's doing on the Sabbath? He's healing people. He's performing signs and wonders. Miraculous events are, t- are transpiring at his hands. And it's this where Jesus then goes through this in this discourse that we see in the, the passage I read to you this morning and where we want to be able to unpack it. And I want to point out a couple of things to you before we even get into our notes, just for you to be able to see and how this is going to apply to you and I. If you begin to think about this, Jesus could have confronted their misunderstanding of the Sabbath as it relates to the moral law. He could have just taken time and said, listen, uh, when an ox falls into a ditch, the laws of the land, the laws of, not the laws of the land, but the laws, uh, the, the moral law of the Old Testament tells us that you can help demonstrate compassion and help a man to retrieve his ox from a ditch. That wouldn't be considered work on the Sabbath. Or he could have confronted the the Sabbath laws as it relates to the moral law, as as he's did in other passages of healing the man with the withered hand and how he talked about demonstrating mercy and compassion and the plucks of the head of, uh, how we were plucking the heads of grain and and begin to bring instructions even from the Old Testament and begin to encourage these gentlemen, uh, these religious leaders of, of their lack of understanding what the Sabbath law was about. Jesus could have warned them that they have neglected the weightier matters of mercy and justice as he, he did in other passages. Jesus could have communicated that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. That ultimately this rest is for them to be able to honor God and glorify God. Jesus could, simply could have stated, as he did in other passages, that he's the Lord of the Sabbath. That's not the direction that Jesus took, right? Jesus didn't back away and Jesus wasn't necessarily uh, just trying simply to correct their understanding of the Sabbath. Jesus had a much greater uh, uh, teaching he wanted to accomplish this particular time, and John is helping us to be able to see it. Jesus rather used this opportunity to address the far greater issue, and that is to actually who he is. Right? This wasn't a theological debate, and that's where I think many times we can go wrong. We start arguing and debating for theological debates and rather missing the big picture equations when we're talking to individuals. The reality is that individuals need to see Christ. Individuals need to see uh, the Christ of the Bible. This is why the Bible is written to us. And so we need to be careful in our conversations with others, not to get lost in the weeds and all these other theological types of debates, but to be able to help portray and to be able to demonstrate who Jesus Christ is as, he, as he's defined himself and is revealed to us in the word of God. And this is exactly what Jesus does. He's just an opportunity to communicate that he is God. Now, the question is, did these Pharisees understand what that's what he was attempting to communicate? I think, yes, verse 17 and 18. Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. Just that one simple statement. My father has been working until now, and I am working. And then listen to how the the Jews interpreted this statement. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. 
Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, that would be one, but two, he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God, right? So this is, this is key to us understanding this passage. Jesus healed intentionally on the Sabbath, not simply to demonstrate compassion to a man who was an invalid for 38 years, and that was gracious for him to do so, but even more so because he was compassionate and gracious for all of the Jews, not just the religious leaders, but all who would, would, would begin to try to understand who he is and needed to understand who he, who he is and was and forever will be. Because why? He is the Messiah, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. And rather than backing away from controversy and conflict and simply trying to mitigate the the, uh, the, the, the conflict that might happen, he presses into it all the more because he desires for them to have clarity as to who he is. And so this topic is vitally important to us even today. Why? Because we cannot remain neutral in our understanding of Jesus. Jesus cannot remain a good moral teacher or a model for us as it relates to being kind and gracious. He does not give us that option. How many times have you heard, whether it be on a variety of... Um, uh, cable television shows, whether it be Fox or CNN or NBC or ABC or CBS, and they talk about Jesus in some historical way as if he's just a model for benevolence. He was just a gracious and good teacher. Well, the reality is Jesus doesn't give them that option just to remain neutral and not be Lord. He either is Lord or he is not. And so Bible makes it clear, as Matthew twelve thirty, whoever is not with me, Jesus says, is against me. And whoever does not gather with me, scatters. And so Jesus does not leave himself and the comments he's made about himself in some ambiguous way. I've heard many, many people that speak about, the, speak about Jesus say that Jesus never himself called himself God. Not true. This passage is one of those. I, my, my father is working until now and I am working. And we're going to continue to go through passage after passage after passage where Jesus is claiming to be God. And so to, to fall into the rhetoric that many would say that Jesus never claims to be God, he was just some good moral teacher, and all of his, his uh, subordinates made him greater than, than, or attempted to make him greater than who he claimed to be, is not true. Jesus makes statements about himself that, when interpreted correctly, either must be acknowledged and obeyed or denied and rejected. He is claiming to be God, and the Jewish religious leaders understand his claims. And this is precisely why, in verse 17, it says, they were seeking all the more to kill him. So as it relates to us, and as it related to them at that particular time, and as we have conversations with individuals, here's where you and I must press, press in. Jesus cannot simply be a good model and a good teacher. Simply that. Is he that? Absolutely he is. But he simply cannot be a good model for, for benevolence in our society. Either he is a liar or he is a lunatic or he is Lord, as C.S. Lewis said years ago. Either he knows he's not God and makes claims like we're going to see today. He talks about the testimony of who he is, the testimony from others about who he is. Either he's a liar and he knows that he's not God and he's intentionally trying to mislead individuals and to be a deceiver. Or he's a lunatic and he really believes he's the Messiah he really believes that he is, that's who he is because he's just outside of his mind and he's, he, he's delusional, he's crazy. Or he is, in fact, genuinely the Lord. And as a result, then we all must submit to him. We can't have middle ground. If he's Lord, there is but one answer for all humanity. Everyone who's ever lived and for, will ever live on this planet, if he is genuinely Lord, 
our response should be to him, yes, Lord. Because if not, then we are testifying by our words and by our works that he is not our Lord and we reject his lordship. Now, does that mean he ceases to be Lord over all of creation? No. This means that we do not, that we do not want him to be Lord over our lives and that we're rebelling against his lordship. And this is exactly what's taking place today. Jesus is testifying to himself and is going to use testimony of others to testify about his lordship, about his deity, his oneness with God the Father. And so let's just take those opposite. Let's just say he is a liar or he is a lunatic. And those were the case. And there would be some questions you need to ask yourself or even statements you could aid to make those who you may have conversations with. If he is a liar, and this isn't really what he says about himself, and these were just made-up tales uh, as it relates to who he is. And here's one, that Jesus was one who could teach as one who had authority. Teach as one who had authority. You remember even in the beginning of the Gospels in Matthew where he talks about at 12 years old, he stayed back after one of the, the feasts, and he was in the house, he was in the temple, the house of God, and he was talking to the, uh, the religious leaders at that particular time, and they were astounded at the information that he knew at age 12. Later on, as we even go through the Gospel of John, you're going to see in the instances where they begin to question, how does this man know these things and teach these things when he has not been formally trained? It's because he teaches us one with authority. Matthew chapter 7, the end of the Sermon on the Mount, they say that this one, Jesus teaches as one who has authority. He has knowledge of the Scriptures. Jesus has knowledge of the human heart. He knows their very thoughts. All throughout the Gospels, he, he perceives of what they are saying. He understands what the person is, is thinking. And he speaks into that. Does that sound like one who is a, a liar, who doesn't really have the claims of God and deity, omniscience to be able to know things? He, he claims to be able to know what is inside the human heart, as we saw in John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. He has knowledge not only of the human heart, he has knowledge of the, their behavior. As he speaks to Nathaniel about where Nathaniel was, and he saw him reading underneath the tree. As the, the, the lady in John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman, and how he knew uh, her past history, despite the fact he had never met her, and that she had five husbands, and the person that she's living with currently is not her husband. He has power over nature, the wind, the waves. He has power over death. He was one who was performing a, a myriad of miracles that even the Pharisees themselves understood must come from God, as Nicodemus testified in John chapter 3. You must be a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs except for God be with him. They, too, didn't even deny his miracles. And I don't believe you'll find anywhere throughout the, the Gospels where that his miracles were not being, were being attested as false, as false claims that he was not healing. Because why? His healings were, were, were in front of multitudes and were in public where many could be able to see. And so all this to be able to say, as we're taking the Gospel and we're understanding, we're walking through the Gospel of John, it isn't for some um, purpose that's just for us to gain knowledge and get puffed up. There is a lost world uh, outside of this building, right? Outside of the gathering. And there's even lostness in the context of this building. There's lostness outside of this building that are desperate need to understand the true gospel and the true God. And it's passages like this that will help us to be able to share with compassion and with truth the claims of who Jesus Christ is. So let's, let's dive into our notes this morning, right? So we're going to look at Jesus Christ is God. All that was by way of introduction as we dive in this morning. But Jesus Christ is God. Let's look first that Jesus declares his testimony of deity and unity with God the Father. Jesus is going to testify to his own, de his own deity, his own unity 
with God the Father. And we see this in a, in a myriad of ways in these opening sections. Jesus declares he is God by, number one, sharing the same nature as God the Father. Jesus claims to share the, the exact nature with God the Father. You say, well, Pastor, where do you see that, that passage come into light? Look in verse 17. This is what set the, uh, the Jewish uh, leaders, the Jewish religious leaders off. And this, this claims that he's making that he is deity and he has unity with God the Father because he shares the same nature as God the Father in verse 17. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Now, to us, that doesn't seem like a whole lot. That may not seem like very much. To, but, okay, let's kill him. We need to kill this individual because of a statement like that. And it relates to the fact that we don't really understand uh, the culture at that particular time. One of the things you need to be able to see is the term my father. That's a clue. All right, we, from a New Testament perspective, look at it and be like, man, Jesus told people all the time to speak like that. I mean, even as he's teaching them to pray, my father who, out, who are in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Like, man, this is just commonplace for us. But this is exactly the point. It was transitioning this to this point because Jesus was recon- was, came to reconcile us to the Father so that we could have this relationship as the bride of Christ. We'd be children of God. We'd be given the right to become children of God as John states in John chapter 1, verse 12. But this would not have been in any form or fashion how the, the individual uh, Jewish people at that particular time would have spoken. They would have spoken about God, our, our Father, as a, in a nationalistic sense. That we are his people and he is our God. He is our father, but not in any kind of a, a personal relationship type, type of communication. A relational sense that he personally is my father. Why? Because to speak in that way say, says that we now share essence and nature. This is my son and who I'm well pleased. Says that he, he's, he shares nature with me. He shares essence with me as my children share my essence right they share my personhood and in similar ways that they would be very similar to me we would we were familial in that sense the jewish people would never have spoken that way because it would be equating yourself with god and this is exactly the way jesus speaks my father is working until now i share the same nature as god now the response that they have, men and women, isn't. We look at this and we, we see the Jewish le- religious leaders as the enemy, and they are. They're the ones who end up uh, desiring to plot to kill Jesus, and they do uh, take that. They, they are able to accomplish that means according to the very sovereign work of God, sovereign plan of God, the counsel of God. But if you understand the Old Testament, this is exactly the response they should have had to someone that they think is a liar or a lunatic is claiming to be God, this would be the natural response. If someone were to come into our gathering today and say, I am God, we would say, liar, blasphemer, lunatic, or deceiver. That would be our response. Because when Jesus comes again, he splits the eastern sky, and he's taking up residence here, and this is where his kingdom will be established forever. Right? So this is, this is what we would understand, because it's what the Bible teaches us. And so these individuals are hearing Jesus make these claims. They're wrong, but this is a natural response they should have to some, just anyone who makes claims. And this is important. This is why we're going to be going to see the testimony that Jesus is going to be making about himself. They should be paying attention to this. And while you and I should pay attention to this, because if not, the things I communicate today aren't sufficient evidence to demonstrate he is truly God, then we should reject him. 
But the evidence as I give today, not from my own words, but from straight from the Scripture, should be able to convince us and should be able to convince others of Christ's deity. And so he's beginning to communicate that he has the same nature as God the Father, which is why in verse 18 the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but it was even calling God uh, his own Father, making himself equal with God. By that one statement in verse 17, he is equating, I am God, right? That's exactly his point. And so when individuals outside of our gathering, or individuals that you're talking to in your circles that you're in and make this claim, Jesus is a good moral teacher. He never claimed to be God. Here's a passage, a passage. You can share a, a number of other passages and, and give you more examples, but this would be a good one to take them to. Because why? He gives them a statement. They interpret it accurately. And as a result of interpreting it accurately, they, they want to kill Jesus. Because Jesus did claim to be God. And not only that, he received worship. He received praise. And all the other means that I told you before, he has authority to teach the scriptures, the knowledge of the scriptures, knows the knowledge of the human heart, behavior of individuals he's never met before, power over the, the nature, wind, waves, power over death, performs miracles. All of those things demonstrate who he is. And so Jesus declares he is God by sharing the same nature as God the Father. Number two, Jesus declares he is God by performing the same works as God the Father. The same works as God the Father. Verse 19 and 20. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. Jesus is saying, my father has creative powers and I have creative powers. And we've seen this, have we not? Water into wine. Healing the nobleman's son from a distance. Didn't even need to be in, this, in proximity to the nobleman's son. You're going to see two more miracles next week when Pastor Tim preaches through John chapter 6. Feeding into 5,000, walking on water. Miracle upon miracle upon miracle upon miracle. And all of these that the people did not doubt. They're seeing, they're observing they're believing in at least some general sense about who he is, not unto salvation, not as he's the Messiah, not he's Lord over all creation, not that he's God himself. But they're believing in some general way. He must be a prophet. There's some things that he's doing that no one else has been able to do. Could he be the Messiah? Because he's performing the same works. And so as you see in verse 90, truly, truly, I say to you, when Jesus speaks to this, truly, truly, amen, amen, as he begins to communicate this, he's, he's, every time you see him say that, he's, he's correcting understanding of the people and that, how they may have, have viewed things. And he says, listen, I want you to understand about me. I want to correct understanding about who I am. The son can do nothing of his own accord. It means there's unity, unity in his deity with the father. There's unity in that. There's oneness. We have a relationship. We act in, in three distinct pers- persons, yes, in the, in the Trinity, right? But yet there's a, a oneness about them. And it's hard to explain it, even as a pastor studies these things. It's, it's difficult to explain because there's no human metaphor that makes a lot of sense for us to be able to interact with these things. There's no human way of understanding this because God is not like us in that way. He's distinct and different from us. And this Jesus says there is a complete unity. And what the Son does is what the Father does. He sees what the Father is doing. The Father loves the Son and shows him all that he is doing. And then he promises that greater works that he will perform 
than these. For what purpose? So that you may marvel. You may understand the goodness and the greatness of God. So Jesus declares he is God by sharing the same nature as God the Father, performing the same works as God the Father, and by possessing the same power as God the Father. Possessing the same power as God the Father. Look at verse 21. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. He raises the dead. Now, this can speak in two different ways. This could speak of just physically raising people from the dead, which did Jesus do that? Talk to me. Yes. Can you name at least somebody he raised from the dead? Lazarus, right? So Lazarus is risen from the dead. And so, and this is important because remember in the, the parable that Jesus shared about the rich man and Lazarus, not the same Lazarus as he was healed from the dead. But remember what the, the rich man says from, from Hades, right? If you just send back somebody from the dead, if you just send back Lazarus, right, this beggar, and my brothers would believe, right? But the reality is, did somebody come back from the dead and did people believe? Yes, Lazarus, the real Lazarus, the, not just the parable one, but the real Lazarus in Bethany was raised from the dead. And did the Pharisees believe? Did other religious leaders believe? No, they did not. Jesus is going to be raised from the dead. And do they believe? No, they make up a lie about his, what happened to his body. They said that ultimately that the body was stolen, right? Because they rejected his claims of deity, right? But in this, you could say, well, was this for us? The Father raises the dead and gives them life, so the Son gives life to whom he will. What does this mean? Is this speaking primarily about bodily re- resurrection, meaning raising people dead? No, I believe it's spiritual resurrection, as you see here. And you, you get the clue from verse 25 and 26 a little later in the passage, but I put it there for you to be able to see and help tie these together. Look at verse 25. Truly, truly, there it is again. Bring an understanding, bring clarity. Pay attention to this. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming, and then here's the key, and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who, will, those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. What is this life that it's speaking of? Spiritual life. Being born again, being born from above, right? As Ephesians 2 would talk about that we were dead in our trespasses and sin. We were dead, and we needed new life. And Christ raised us up to newness of life, as Romans 5 would be able to say. Made us alive in Christ, as Ephesians 2 would be able to communicate to us. And so this new life that is being granted to us is a spiritual resurrection. Raising up our dead hearts. Take out the heart of stone and put it in the heart of flesh that we may love God and know God. Interact with God the Father. Be able to see Him. And so we know this is uh, uh, that the Son has life. Right? In verse 26, for us, the Father has life in Himself. So also the Son is granted the Son. Uh, also to have life in himself. So he has life. We know in verse 21, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life. So the Son has life, and the Son grants life, because why? The Son is life. Remember all the way back to John chapter 1? The opening statement about who Jesus is, that he is the word with God and is with God, and there was life, and him was life, is life. And so you begin to see that Jesus is life, he has life, as we see in verse 26. And then verse 21, we see that the Son gives life. Gives life. So important for us to be able to understand this. For us to be able to see this is why, um, if you skip down to verse 24, it's, it even brings it clear. Truly, truly, I say to whoever hears my words and believes, him who sent me has eternal life. It's a spiritual resurrection, right? 
It's a new birth in us where we were dead and we would not respond to the things of God. Now there's new, a new heart and a new desires and an enablement and a willingness to obey the word of God. And this is the same power that God the Father has. Right? For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, He regenerates souls, so the Son also gives life to whom He wills. Spiritual resurrection, possessing the same power as God the Father. And Jesus declares He is God by executing the judgment on behalf of God the Father. Executing judgment on behalf of God the Father. Look at verse 22. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Now, the question would be, well, why would that be the case? Why should, why should we communicate that? Well, let's look at verse 27 and 29, and I'm going to answer that for you. Verse 27 and 29 speaks of a physical resurrection. as of a final judgment that's going to be granted, right? And we spoke about a spiritual resurrection where he, he makes the inner man new, right? He creates an, a, a, a newness that was a, our mind and our heart and our emotions and our will responds with the Spirit of God and responds in like manner. But then it's a physical resurrection where at the end of time, God, Jesus will, or God will resurrect all those who are, are going to be eternally damned in hell and all those can be eternally rewarded in heaven. And we see that in verse 27 through 29 with Jesus executing this final judgment. Look at verse 27. And he's given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. Which it plays on the same words before, with those uh, and ver- going back to verse 25, and it likens to it one being spiritual, one being physical. Verse 25, speaking to the spiritual, and it says, There's a time now is here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Well, the same thing speaking to the physical body. Just like Lazarus, there will be a physical body being brought out of the tombs, and it will be, be a time that is yet to come is an hour is coming an age that is to come when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment there's going to be a final judgment the resurrection of of the righteous and the resurrection of the unrighteous where all who have ever lived will be resurrected right now their their soul is that has already departed the body were to be in heaven or, or in hell at this particular point, but they now will have new resurrected bodies fit for even a future judgment or future blessing. And the bodies will be fit for heaven and will be fit for hell, and they will either be eternally punished with a physical body or be eternally rewarded with a physical body that will be reunited to their soul. And so here's what the reality here for us to be able to see, that Jesus is the one that's going to be able to judge them. Now, it's interesting. I don't know if you pick this up, but... You'll see in verse 25, look at how Jesus speaks of himself. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. As Speaking of spiritual resurrection, he references to himself, third person, as the Son of God. But then in verse 27, as he speaks of the physical resurrection, look how the word has changed. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. It's interesting for those. Now, ultimately, they're synonyms because it's supposed to speaking to himself, right? So, but why, why does it speak to that? Well, ultimately, the God is the one who grants life. God is the one who is the giver of spiritual life. But then even of him being the son of man, it uh, harkens back to um, uh, Jesus being the ultimate judge. And it references even to Jesus back in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. But even in, as we begin to think about this, who better to judge than the God-man, Right? One who is fully God 
and fully man. So he's fully human, he's fully God, and he's experienced all the experiences that we would experience. He's been tempted, uh, at least in, in his humanity, in all ways that we could be uh, tempted, and yet he is one without sin. So who better to be able to judge than the God-man, the mediator between God and man, the, the man of Christ Jesus? Now, what is he judging? Whether or not we believe. And you say, well, hold on, Pastor. It's not what I read here, what it reads here. Look at verse 29, Pastor. It doesn't say he's judging faith. It seems like he's judging works. And and he says that he'll cry out to the tombs, and they will hear his voice. And verse 29, they'll come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So ultimately, here's what we have, works-based faith, works-based religion. And I would say, no, it is not. Those who do evil simply demonstrate they do not have faith and they do not have life, but that their works demonstrate that they do not. What is one thing that that believers and unbelievers share? Well, they don't share the same faith. And they don't share eternal life. And so how are you to distinguish between believers and unbelievers? The same way this passage distinguishes and the same way all throughout the, the Gospels it distinguishes and the same way Jesus distinguishes. Those who have genuine faith will do good, and those who do not have genuine faith will do evil. So it's not works-based righteousness. It's by faith. But those who have genuine faith will work the works of righteousness. That's where Ephesians 2 talked about. You will do the works that God had prepared beforehand, that you may walk in them, right? May do good works, and they may glorify my Father who is in heaven. These are the teachings of Scripture. So we can't divorce our works from our, our, our faith because our works are basically demonstrations of what we genuinely believe. If we don't believe Jesus is coming back and we don't believe the claims of who He is, we're not going to obey. But if we genuinely believe who He is and what He says about Himself is true, we know He is coming back to judge us. And ultimately in that, we can, He can be trusted and His word can be obeyed. And as a result, we will make sacrifices today because we desire the reward of tomorrow, right? Desire the reward of tomorrow. This is the teaching of Scripture for us. And so ultimately, Jesus executes the judgment on behalf of God the Father. Number four, Jesus declares that he is God. By number one, sharing the same nature as God the Father, performing the same works as God the Father, possessing the same power as God the Father, executing, the, the, uh, executing judgment on behalf of God the Father. And that wasn't number four, it's number five. And receiving the same honor as God the Father. Receiving the same honor as God the Father. He says that in verse uh, 23, or back at 22, keep it all, the, the, the entire verse together, or the entire sentence together. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. And in verse 23, that... All may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. So he gives him the opportunity to judge so that why? The Son receives the honor that the Father would also receive. Right? Now, if they are sharing the same essence, the same nature, they're one, right? Monotheistic, one God, right? Yet three persons. Now, that blows your mind. blows my mind. So we're in the same boat, right? But one God then ultimately when the Father is honored, the Son is honored. And when the Spirit is honored, the Father and the Son is honored, right? And so this is the key here that is not taking away from one or the other. It's one God, three persons. The result of this brings honor and glory to all because they're one God. 
And so that in this, Jesus desires and will receive the same honor as God the Father. That honor may, may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Why? Why? Well, because they share the same nature. They're one God in three persons. But also they're calling God the Father a liar, as we'll see in just a moment. So we receive the same honor as God the Father. And lastly, number six, Jesus declares he is God by speaking with the same authority as God the Father. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Why is the Father honored when the Son is honored? Because if you believe the word of the Son, you believe the Father, right? That's what it says here. The words that Christ speaks demonstrate whether or not you believe the one who sent him. And this is eternal life that you may um, um, know the one true God in Jesus Christ whom he has sent. You will not be reconciled to God the Father if you do not believe the Savior of the, God the Son. And so this is exactly the point. He who does not, and it says here, he, uh, in verse 24, he does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. You will not be judged if you trust in the one who's come to make payment for your sins. But if you reject him, then you've been judged already. There's a judgment that's been made about us if we reject who Christ is, that we'll have a future um, uh, fulfillment, right? That the, the final verdict uh, will be granted, and the exe- or the verdicts have been given, but the execution of that will be one day, and it's exactly why Jesus will be the one who executes the judgment himself, because he's the one in whom you have denied, right? And so ultimately we pass from death to life. This is why we can't just say Jesus is a model teacher, but he is not Lord. Because he is not neutral. That's why I started off the sermon the way I started off. He's not neutral. You can't just make claims about who Jesus is that aren't founded in Scripture. He's defined who he is. If it was ambiguous and subjective, then fine. But Jesus has been very clear to demonstrate who he is, and we must yield and submit to him. And in, in John chapter 5, 30 and 31, you continue to see this claims about his authority and about how he speaks. John 5, 30 and 31, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Now, think about that for a moment. He says that if I bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. So that means that Jesus says, I'm a liar. I'm lying about this. That's not what he's saying. He says, ultimately, if a person claims to be God, you're going to say, show me that you're God which is why he's demonstrating works and is walking through these six points about who he is. But he's simply saying that even in the Old Testament when there was going to be capital punishment, and this would be a situation where capital punishment would be, would be granted, if a person blasphemes God, then there's witnesses, and ultimately this person would be declared guilty, and they would be taken outside the camp and be stoned, right? They would kill him. And so in this situation, Jesus is claiming to be God, and he says that ultimately what he's saying there is that my testimony, if it's just me and my testimony... You should believe me because I'm God, but I understand that you won't, right? And so that's all he was meaning by the last verse 31. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. How do we know that's the interpretation, Pastor, that, that John wants us to understand? Well, if you skip a few verse, or a few chapters, look at John chapter 8. John chapter 8, beginning in verse 12 through 14. Jesus once again going to be speaking about himself, who he is, bringing clarity about that, and he's going to bring... Um, much uh, clarity to this may be confusion if you think, well, I don't know if that's really what that means. And he's saying, you, you don't believe me, and you shouldn't believe me, and you shouldn't trust me. 
in this, and my testimony then isn't true. But is that what he means? No. Look at John chapter 8, verse 12 through 14. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. He's just saying, hey, I understand culturally, religiously, even from the Old Testament, you need to have witnesses, right? But then listen to how Jesus responds in verse 14. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true, for I know where I came from and where I'm going, but you do not know where I, came, I come from or from where or where I am going. So all Jesus was saying here in this particular statement in John chapter 5 is exactly what they would say in John chapter 8. You're just speaking for yourself. We're not going to believe you. Where are your witnesses? Where's your testimony? How do we, what proof do you have that you are truly God? So Jesus isn't claiming that by speaking on behalf of himself that his testimony is not true. He's just saying you will believe my testimony is not true. Because ultimately in John chapter 8 he says my testimony is true. Or not you believe it or not. It's true. I'm God. I created you. I created everything. I'm God. My testimony is true. However, I understand you're not going to believe it. And that's all he was alluding to in chapter 5. But ultimately, he speaks with the same authority as God the Father. When he speaks, he only, only speaks truth, right? Now, that was all just Jesus' testimony of himself, of his deity and of his unity with God the Father. But as we see here in this particular passage, he's talking about, if I bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true, right? And we saw in verse 30. So he's going to communicate, I know you're not going to believe about me, just because I'm teaching, right? You want witnesses. And so then Jesus is going to give them witnesses. Again, verses 32 to 39, we're going to see that Jesus declares the testimony of God the Father as it relates to his deity. You want a witness? I will call a witness to the stand. Let's let the God you say you serve. Jehovah speak for me. The Lord, the great I am. Let's let him speak. And let's see what his testimony is about me, right? So Jesus is going to bring clarity to how God testifies. God the Father testifies of himself, right? So look at those for a few moments. God the Father testifies of Jesus by three ways, right? Now, sometimes it can be confusing because the Bible um, publishers that you have kind of maybe sometimes break these up. They break them up into the testimony of John the Baptist, testimony of Jesus' works, and testimony of Scripture. But if you back up for a minute, you see that these are all testimony of God the Father, on his behalf, and I'll point those out to you as we go, right? So God the Father testifies by the witness of John the Baptist, right? So in verse 31, it says, If I alone bear witness about my testimony, uh, about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears witness about me is true. There's another. So who's the other person that he's talking about? Who's this person that you're beginning to see that is the one who's going to be testifying about me. Well, ultimately, verse 37 will tell us who that person is, right? Ultimately, look in verse 37. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. The Father has borne witness about me. Now, how has the Father borne witness about Jesus? And one of the ways the Father has borne witness about Jesus is by sending the witness of John the Baptist. And exactly where he picked up in verse 33. He says, you sent to John, speaking of John the Baptist, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that a testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. Now, when do they send to John the Baptist? Well, if you remember all the way back in our Gospel of John, they, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the Jews sent to, to John. And they're trying to figure out who John is, right? You remember all the way back? 
This is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. And so they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Right? Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him then, Why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And then he begins to talk about that to them. The next day, he sees Jesus coming. And listen to the testimony he made about Jesus. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Right? So he's the very Lamb of God. He's coming as the Messiah to take away the sin of the world. This is of him who I said, after me comes man who rakes before me. He comes after me, but he ranks above me, so he's superior to me, because he was before me. Now, how does he come after me if he was before me? It's because he's eternal. Right? He is the God-man. He is eternally God, and he's taking on human flesh. And he says, I didn't myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing water that he, that he might be revealed to Israel. So why did John baptize? To make straight... The, the past straight for the Messiah, the Lord, and also that the Messiah could be identified. This is exactly what he says. I came baptizing water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me, who sent him, who sent John the Baptist, God, the father, right? He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, he on whom you see the spirit descend, and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and bore witness that this is the Son of God. God the Father sent John the Baptist to testify of who Jesus is. And you think John the Apostle knew this? It's exactly why he put it, inspired of the Holy Spirit, in the Scriptures. He's laying this thing out so that we gather, we can make sure we, can, we have proofs. That we can know with absolute certainty about who Jesus Christ is. John says, he's the Lamb of God. He comes after me, but he ranks before me because he was before me. He baptized with the Spirit. He's the Son of God. He is the Lamb of God. He says that twice in John chapter 1. And so God the Father testifies by the witness of John the Baptist. Now, did they believe the witness of John the Baptist? Yes and no. Yes, they saw the works that he was doing. And yes, the crowd and the multitudes that were following him. And so much so, they sent to him trying to find out who he is and who he was. And even Jesus played with them, right? They were asking him questions and he says, Will you tell me this? Who is John the Baptist? Did he come from God? And he knew he had them, right? Because they, they themselves, the, the Jews could not, Jews, the Jewish religious leaders, could not deny the fact of this man was something. He was special. And Jesus alludes to him quite often throughout the Gospels. And so as we're seeing this, He's, Jesus is using the very testimony of them, of their words, against themselves. They knew who John was, John the Baptist. They knew what he stood for. He's the one who tells them in, 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 uh, in, the, in the Gospels, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the wrath to come? Why are you coming to check me out? You've got your whole little religious system. Is it not enough to save you? Why are you coming to me? And yet they believed that he was sent, that he was a prophet from God. Well, if he's a prophet from God, why don't you believe what he says? He's the one who said that Jesus was the Lamb of God. He's coming to take away the sins of the world. He's the one who said that he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. 
He's the one who says he's going to baptize with the Spirit. He's the one who said he's the Son of God. Why won't you believe him? And this was the testimony that God the Father testifies by, uh, of Jesus by the witness of John the Baptist. But that's not it. It's going to be a threefold witness. Look at number two. God the Father testifies of Jesus by the works that Jesus performs. Verse 36. Well, I didn't do 35. Let me just explain this quickly. He was a burning, uh, was a burning and shining lamp. You were willing to rejoice for a while in his light simply to saying you testified the fact that you enjoyed him for a season, right? That's where we go all the way back to John chapter 1. And he says, I'm but a lamp, not a light, right? Jesus is the true light. And here he just calls him a lamp, not the one true light, but the simply a lamp. And they were willing to receive his witness for a season. Verse 36, you now see the works that Jesus performs. That was the testimony of God the Father. But the testimony I have given is greater than that of John. So he says, listen, John's testimony is true. You're willing to embrace his light for a while. But my testimony is even greater than that of John. Why? For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, the very works that you understand as, as being accomplished, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. I would, if I'm a liar, how can I do these works? If I'm a lunatic, then surely I shouldn't be able to accomplish these works. And it's not like it's been done in a, in a corner by secret. These works have been done where everyone can be able to see. And your own prophet, I mean, your own, uh, the teacher of Israel, Nicodemus, came to me and said, we understand the works you've done are by God. You must be a teacher because how can anybody do these works if they're not from God? Now, that puts them in a difficult situation, especially when Jesus points it out to them, right? You believe in works. Now you're seeing them. Why don't you believe in me? You believed in John, enjoyed his light for a while. Why don't you believe me? So you know what they do then? Eventually, John gets beheaded. He comes off the scene. Right. And now what, how they begin to tribute Jesus' works. They, they believed in them. They saw them. They can't deny them. It's too obvious. So what do they say? Well, this is when Jesus is going to move to parables and teaching in parables only. And what was it? They attribute his works by the power of the Holy Spirit to the working of demons. That's how they give credit for it. Oh, well, I don't know how to explain it. He must be of the devil. And so as a result of that, he's a devil. And at that moment, Matthew chapter 13 Jesus speaks in parables only corporately. Only parables corporately. And then behind the scenes, he begins to explain these things to his disciples. The very works that Jesus performs is a a testimony of God the Father. And God the Father testifies of Jesus by not only the witness of John the Baptist, the works that Jesus performs, but the word of God found in the Scriptures. Look at verse 37 through 39. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do, not ha- you do not have his word abiding in you. What a claim. These are religious leaders that have spent their lives studying the Torah, that spent their lives studying and desiring to obey. Listen, we, we, they're wrong in what they're doing, okay? But it's an overcorrection from where they have came. The children of Israel were constantly idolatrous. Right? They were constantly seeking after other gods. When they came into the land of Canaan, they were supposed to clear out all the other, other nations so they would not be tempted to go after other gods. They did not do so, and constantly they began to follow the other gods. And so after they had been uh, uh, taken into exile and in captivity, the northern kingdom to Assyria and the southern kingdom to Babylon, man, when they were allowed to come back, they're like, let's do it right. Now, rather than staying in the Word, they begin to add things to the Word, and that's where we all get in trouble. We add things to what the Scripture says. Just be where the Scripture is. Don't go beyond it or lessen it. Just stay right where it is. Don't look to the right or to the left. Stay in the Word. Just do what the Word says. Now, you're going to be accused of being a legalist, even if you just do what the Word says, because most people don't do that. But I'm just saying, stay there. Don't go beyond it. Either direction, right or the left. Don't add to it. Don't take away from it. Just do what it says. But they begin to add to it. 
because I didn't want to disobey it. And then over time, it just turned into a legalistic system that was devoid of any truth. Truth that, any truth that could save. So much so they don't even recognize the Messiah when he shows up. And he says, and you do not have his word abiding in you. What do you mean to tell me? We study the word. What do you mean we don't understand it? Verse 38, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. You study the Bible, but it's devoid of truly understanding the one who wrote the Bible. And this can be true of all of us. We can study so diligently. We can be so zealous for the word and and forget love and compassion. Not love our neighbor as ourselves. The reason we study, men and women, I don't want you to be able to win arguments. I want you to be prepared. I want you to be able to stand toe-to-toe, that you'd be able to know the truth, not so that you can be proud and you can be puffed up. I share this so that you and I can know God more and love Him more, and with confidence and courage that we are actually in relationship with Him, we can, we can say, as the, as the book of Romans says, if God be for us, who can be against us? That's why I want you to know. I don't want us walking around as big theological bobbleheads that we think we know better than everyone else. I simply want us to know what the Scripture actually teaches so that we can, wherever our foot treads, we know this is property that belongs to God. And whatever happens to me, as long as I obey the Lord and speak in truth, I welcome it and I rejoice whatever happens. That's what I long for. For my life, my family's life, for my extended family's life, for my faith family's life, it's what I long for our everyone that is in contact with me, that we would grow in knowledge and wisdom of the word. And not simply to search the scriptures because we think the scriptures have eternal life. God has eternal life. And has he given us the scriptures? And are the scriptures eternal? Is the word of God true? Yes and yes and yes. But Christ alone is the one who gives eternal life. Why? Because the Pharisees studied the scriptures, the Old Testament. And do they have eternal life? No. It did not abide in them as we see in this particular passage. So what was it? How, how do we know that this was the case? How do we know that uh, if you begin to look at it, they would think, well, man, how are they going to know the Old Testament? Well, they studied the Old Testament. They should have seen it. And this is exactly what Jesus does when he comes back from the grave. If you begin to, uh, if you're familiar with uh, right before Jesus ascends after his resurrection, there were some guys walking on the road. And as there, some disciples walking on the road, just look what he says to them. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. It was there all along, right? But it had been taught ill. It had been uh, ill-perceived and, and not taught properly. Not in the understanding of the Messiah to fulfill it. And this is true of us. How many times have we heard various parables and things that were taught to us? I know many of you spoke to me after last week. I was like, man, I never saw that in John 5. I thought the guy was just like the blind man in John 9 who was defending Jesus. Man, he really did rat him out. I didn't believe you at first. I had to really study him on my own because I'm thinking, pastors teach some crazy stuff. But then how many times have we just read things just kind of quickly without really asking questions of the text, querying the text? All of a sudden you go, man, I was wrong in that. God, help me not to be wrong in those things. Again, in verse 44 of Luke 24. Then he said to them, speaking of his disciples, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, which is just an allusion to the whole entire Old Testament, must be fulfilled. 
Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. Now go share the truth. And this is what I want to do this morning, what I'm trying to do this morning in teaching John 5, that we are witnesses of what has happened, and let's go be witnesses outside to who Jesus really is. What does the Bible speak of him? I'm just going to quickly speak. The Old Testament speaks of his virgin birth, location of his birth, that he was going to be born in Bethlehem, that Herod was going to attempt to kill uh, Jesus and all the little Jewish babies. Uh, there was the flight to Egypt, uh, that Jesus would be uh, of the Nazarenes, that he would be a, Na- a Nazarene, speaks of his crucifixion and so on and so forth. There's lack of time. I don't have time to share all that the Bible spoke of Jesus and what he, what he says. But as Jesus said twice in Luke 24, the Old Testament has spoken about me. And God the Father testifies uh, by John the Baptist, by Jesus' works, and by the Scriptures themselves. Now, lastly and quickly, and it won't take much time for you to be able to see this, Jesus declares the testimony of those who reject this proof of his deity. In spite of all this testimony, Jesus' testimony, God the Father's testimony, they will still reject him. And the people will refuse to believe in Jesus because they will not glorify Jesus Christ. Why won't they glorify Jesus Christ? They want to glorify themselves. He says, yet you, you refuse to come to me that you may have life, and I do not receive glory from people. I'm not willing to become what you want me to be because that's not who I am. You have an ideology about who the Messiah is, and that's not me, and that's not the glory that I want to receive is that I become who you want me to be. I am who I am. I am God, and you need to respond in like manner. And so I don't look for your glory. I'm not coming for that glory. I come for the glory of God the Father the oneness and the unity that we have. There's a plan, and that plan is to be a suffering servant, to die for the sin so that you can be reconciled to God the Father. And the people refuse to believe in Jesus because they will not glorify Jesus Christ. Number two, the people refuse to believe in Jesus because they do not love God the Father. Verse 42, but I know that you do not love, you not have the love of God within you. How does he know that? He's omniscient. He knows what's in the heart of man. Remember John chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. Just write that down. You can go back and look at it later. John 2, 23 to 25. I don't need anybody to testify of man because I know what was in man. Right? That's why Jesus knew they believed in him, but he did not entrust himself to them because he knew what was in man. He said, I know you, and I know you do not have the love of God within you. If you did, you would trust me, but you don't. You reject me because you don't love the Father. I have come in my Father's name, verse 43, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. That's why you were willing to go to John the Baptist. Why you're willing to go to others and many, many, many false Christ, not John Baptist was a false Christ, but many other false messiahs that you will, you will come to them because they come for their own name and you want your own gain. Verse 44, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? You only are seeking glory for yourselves and yet you're rejecting the very glory of God that stands before you. What did, what did John say, John the Apostle in the beginning of this, uh, John 1? And the word became flesh and dwelt among them, among them, and we have seen his glory. Glory is the only one from the Father full of grace and truth. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? God himself stands in front of you and you won't seek me. Why won't you seek me? You don't want my glory and you don't love my Father. And lastly, the people refuse to believe in Jesus because they do not believe the word of God. Verse 45 through 47. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There's one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? And that was at the heart of what they, they trusted in the most. 
We want the glory of God. We have the love of God. And we love the word of God. And yet they were so wrong. If they wanted the glory of God, there he is. In person. Incarnate. Tabernacling among them. Dwelt among them. They would have loved God the Father. They had love for the Father. They would have loved the Son. But they don't believe the word of God. They don't love the word of God. And so we tell from this two takeaways and we're done. Those who reject Jesus cannot get beyond themselves. They glorify themselves. They love themselves. And they, they believe that they have the final authority rather than the word. Rather than they glorify Christ, they love God the Father who sent Christ, and they believe in the word of God. They glorify themselves, they love themselves, and they believe they have the final authority rather than the word of God. When you're dealing with somebody and they begin to reject the scriptures, you need to begin to encourage, be cautious, be careful in your conversation with them, but continue to draw them to what the Bible says. Help them to see Christ in the Bible so that they can love God, right? You can't say you love God and hate his son, and then that ultimately they may submit to the word. What if you're here this morning and you think, well, Pastor, that's great. But I'm, I'm one who struggles with assurance of a, a salvation. Take it back and go the opposite direction, right? That's how we're talking about people who are rejecting God. They reject Jesus because they can't get beyond themselves. They glorify themselves. They love themselves. And they believe they have the final authority rather than the word. But the opposite is true for those who, who are believers but struggle with salvation. Do you love Jesus Christ and desire to give him glory in all that you do? Do you love God the Father? You have a love for God the Father. Do you desire the word of God and believe what it says? That should be encouragement and hope to all of us here. To be able to say, do I love Jesus Christ? Man, it's the best I can understand. I, I, I love God the Father. I want to obey what his word says. I'm glad he sent Christ to reconcile me to himself, to die for my sins, to live the life I couldn't live, to die the death that I deserve. I confess I'm a sinner and I'm in need of a, a savior Jesus Christ is Lord, whether or not I submit to him or not, but I willingly yield and submit to him as Lord of my life. And I hope his word tells me who he is and how I should obey him. And I want to obey all that he, had, he did and taught. And so, Lord, I, best I know, I, want, I love Jesus. I want his glory. I love you. And I want to obey what your word says. That's just in you. That would give me hope and encouragement that I'm a genuine born-again believer. There might be some questions or maybe some struggling with sin, but ultimately that should give you assurance and give you hope to get you on the right track at least. And if those things aren't true for yourself or for those that you know and love, then those opposite would be true. They don't glorify Christ. They glorify themselves. They don't love the Father. They love themselves. And they don't believe um, the word of God. They believe that they have the final authority uh, above and beyond what the word says in and of itself. And that should lead us to question. We can't give the final authority because who's going to be the final? Who's going to execute the final judgment? Not I. Not you. The Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of Man but it should not give us assurance for them and on their behalf, and we should warn them of an impending judgment if they genuinely, truly aren't Christians. And so that's the mandate that we have. And that's the encouragement that we have. Men and women, we have a great God. And Jesus Christ, in whom he is sent, is God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Father, I know that was covering a lot. Of Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. 
No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.